Hello, and welcome to the Library Cafe, a weekly program about libraries' research and the formation and circulation of knowledge. I'm Thomas Hill. I'm very delighted today to have on the program Marges Bacon, architectural historian and Matthews Distinguished University Professor of Art and Architecture Emerita at Northeastern University. I'm talking with Marges by telephone about something dear to my heart and about her book, John McAndrew's Modernist Vision from the Vassar College Art Library to the Museum of Modern Art, just out from Princeton Architectural Press. Hello, Marges. Hello, Tom. Great to be with you. Ah, it's great to have you on the show. Of course, I said the subject of the book is dear to my heart because it's about the library I've spent the last 30-some years in. We often work or live in buildings, sometimes old buildings, without ever really knowing about them or the people who design them or about their place or influence on the world we inherit along with them. This is even the case, I find, at academic institutions where one would think institutional history would be held at a premium. But our architect here has been a household name in Van Ingen Hall. Certainly since I arrived here 30-some years ago, the art department still feels the impress of John McAndrew's memory and his lingering presence. So you've done us all a huge benefit by bringing us this concrete information about his life and his influence on us and on architecture in the United States in general, and also, frankly, about Vassar's own contribution to the course of art and modern architecture through McAndrew and his colleagues here in the first half of the 20th century. So finally, this is a story also, I think, about Vassar's role in fostering the study of art and architecture in American higher education in general. So there's lots to talk about. So maybe to start, could you talk about John McAndrew and uh, his own background and education? Well, John McAndrew was born in Brooklyn, New York in 1904. His father was an educator, a principal of a school in Manhattan, Mm -hmm. and then a superintendent of schools both in New York and Chicago. He was strong-willed, principled, Mm -hmm. Rather overbearing, <laughs> we're told. Yeah, Scotsman. It, yeah, yeah, very much. Yeah. His grandparents were born in Scotland. Mm-hmm. His grandmother was the first woman physician in Michigan. And both his parents and his grandparents were, they, they supported liberal causes. And that carried over to McAndrew, who was a very principled person. He was educated as a boy at the elite Riverdale Country School in New York. Mm -hmm. He was described at the school as a boy of superior intelligence and power. And in fact, he graduated at 16 Mm -hmm. in 1920. His education, and he went to Harvard? That's right. He was in the class of 1924 Uh as a fine arts major. The most important class for him was one taught by Fogg Art Museum director Edward Waldo Forbes. Mm -hmm. It's a rather famous course called Methods and Processes of Italian Painting. And Forbes taught students using original works of art from his own collection, Mm -hmm. which is just unimaginable today. It apparently was quite a practical as well as a theoretical course. 
you learned how to apply plaster and gold leaf, for example. Mm-hmm. And what McAndrew valued in Forbes's teaching of techniques and processes based on those original works was, for example, how color changed over time, what mm-hmm. you could and couldn't do. And he said that it helped him to see, and he really emphasized that, to see a work of art. Well, in Forbes's course and at Harvard College, he met students who would become his lifelong friends. Mm-hmm. Students like A. Everett Austin, mm-hmm. who was known as Chick Austin, later to become director of the Wadsworth Athenaeum mm-hmm. in Hartford, and Henry Russell Hitchcock, the historian, mm-hmm. Julian Levy, the gallery director, Virgil Thompson, the composer, and these men would become some of the leading modernists and figures in the arts in mm-hmm. America. But he was also, you know, at the same time, within a circle of gay men, mm-hmm. Austin, Hitchcock, Thompson, and others, and equally associated with the Harvard Dramatic Club, in mm-hmm. fact, designed sets for a production of Carlo Goldoni's comedy, The Liar. Mm-hmm. So it was a very heady time for him, having been young, entering Harvard, and then experiencing a whole new world opening up for him. When he graduated from Harvard College, he quickly entered Harvard Architecture School. And at that time, it was governed by the Beaux-Arts system, which was a rather conservative system, in contrast to what was going on in Europe, which was modernism, Mm -hmm. the Dale movement in Holland, the Bauhaus in Germany, and the Corbusier in France. And to him, that was all underground because he was enmeshed in this conservative system. The window on what was happening outside that system was really through his teacher, George Harold Edgell, mm-hmm. who introduced students to the work of Frank Lloyd Wright in his lectures, mm-hmm. but also through students who carry around copies of the French editions of Le Corbusier's Vers une architecture, uh-huh. toward new architecture, and also Urbanisme, a book on city planning. Uh-huh. But it was at Harvard that he met Alfred Barr when he was an architecture student. Mm-hmm. Barr had come to the Fog. He'd actually been a student there, but he'd come to the Fog Art Museum to give a lecture in 1927. At the time, he was teaching at Wellesley, And McAndrew talked to Barr at a party afterwards, and Barr then became McAndrew's lifelong friend and mentor and Mm -hmm. supporter. And it was at this time that McAndrew also became a kind of fringe member of what Stephen Watson called the Harvard modernists. Mm -hmm. It was this circle around Paul Sachs that included Hitchcock and Austin and Barr and Kirk Askew, Jerry Abbott, Lincoln Kirstein, John Walker, Eddie Warburg, and two women, Agnes Ringe, who mm-hmm. comes to Vassar, as you know, and Agnes Mongan, who much later on becomes director of the Fog Art Museum. Mm-hmm. So it was a very heady time for him. 
Yeah. Interesting that his fellow students have such an influence on him. I often say to students that your real teachers when you're an undergraduate can be your fellow students. Yes. And it seems to have been the case with him uh, yes. to, to some extent here. And also, modernism, even this early, it's hard to get our minds around exactly what it meant at the time, but it's certainly a revolutionary idea and almost like a religious movement, isn't it? I mean, it's something that requires adherence, and it's something that people were willing to be missionaries for, yes? Well, there was a sort of watershed moment for McAndrew because he realized that what he was being taught at, the School of Architecture at Harvard in the Beaux-Arts system was not the future. Uh. And he read Toward a New Architecture in mm. French and realized that modernism, which was all about the culture of the present, mm-hmm. was, in fact, the future. And he left architecture school in the spring of 1927. He dropped out then, didn't he? He dropped uh, out. He moved to New York. Mm. He took a job as a draftsman with Amar Embry, who was a very fashionable architect, but still really in the Beaux-Arts system because modernism hadn't really taken hold in America. And he made his first trip to Europe in the summer of 1929, which was a very revolutionary thing to do in the sense that most architects or most draftsmen didn't have that opportunity. Uh I mean, if you were going to go to Europe, you would study at the Ecole des Beaux-Arts. Yes, yeah, like many 19th century architects. uh, That's right, that's right. But he went to Europe to go look at buildings, Uh look at modern buildings, and also to go to the museums. And in a museum gallery in Mannheim, Germany, in the summer of 1929, he encounters Philip Johnson, mm-hmm. who was also at Harvard at the time, but they didn't know each other. And they were immediately drawn to one another. And if I can just pause for a second, I just want to say a moment about the value of primary research and deep research, that this book could not have been possible without the dedication of archivists and librarians, most especially your assistants, Tom. <laughs> but the McAndrews papers at the Wellesley College uh-huh. Archives and the Vassar College Libraries and, you know, your own resources, Tom, and many other institutions, including two interviews with McAndrew, one at the Archives of American Art at the Smithsonian Institution and another at the Wadsworth Athenaeum, really do inform us, because McAndrew retained almost no documents from his early years. Mm -hmm. So I had to rely on a lot of collateral resources. Now, we know about Johnson's activity in Europe and what he thought about this period from his letters to his mother in Ohio, Uh which are in the Johnson papers at the Getty Research Institute. So... We know that in 1929, McAndrew traveled with Johnson in his really ostentatious Packard touring car, which was an incredible sight in Europe. can picture it, yes. And they were visiting J.J.P. Oud's buildings, his worker housing in Rotterdam, Ernst Mai's worker housing. This was the avant-garde building. So that worker housing in Frankfurt, 
of course, Walter Gropius's Bauhaus in Dessau, yes. Eric Mendelssohn's House Outside of Berlin, as well as buildings in Leipzig and Dresden and Prague. And during this time, Johnson and McAndrew are living together in Berlin in an apartment which they set up as their base. And this is the Isherwood years, isn't it? I mean, Berlin That's is right. an exciting place. Yes. That's yeah. right. Yeah. In fact, Johnson later recalled in taped interviews of those months together, enjoying the music and dance, the opera, the cafe concert, mm-hmm. the plays, and the art exhibitions. And he said, and this is a quote, it was mostly sex. Mm-hmm. Isherwood period because they <laughs> oh. were both caught up in Berlin's asceticism yeah. as well as its tolerance and openness for gay culture. Yeah. So it was this in effect was a new beginning mm. for McAndrew. yeah. And but, he's, he's seeing primary material here, too. I mean, he's seeing the buildings, which have a tremendous effect on him. Don't that's they? right. Yeah, and so. that is the significance yeah. of this trip, mm-hmm. that he saw firsthand many of the major modernist European buildings mm-hmm. of the incandescent decade of the 1920s. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Tom, by mid-November of 29. McAndrew had a falling out with Johnson, and he returned home to New York. So that was the end of that first trip to Europe, that revelation. Yeah. So then modernism itself comes to New York, doesn't it? It sort of follows him back here, not through his doing, but it becomes itself a place of ferment and a place of the future, doesn't it, just at this time? Well, I always think that modernism comes two ways, Mm -hmm. that there's a native tradition of Uh modernism, Uh and that, you know, we could track that through the organic tradition of Mm -hmm. Richardson Sullivan Wright, for example, is the sort of Lewis Mumford strain Mm -hmm. of modernism, and it's much more complex than that, but that's one strain. And then the received tradition from Europe so that that's a kind of synthesis that McAndrew is very astute mm-hmm. at synthesizing. And we can uh, talk about that maybe a little later, but yeah. do we talk about those New York years yes, when he comes yeah, back yeah. to New York? Yeah, with uh, Kirk and Constance Askew and yeah. uh, Levy Gallery. Well, when McAndrew returns to New York, he comes back to that dull drafting job, mm-hmm. and then he works for... His Harvard classmate, Julian Levy, who directs the New York Gallery, which is specializing in surrealist art and in photography. And McAndrew becomes a kind of secretary to the gallery. Mm-hmm. And he brings in the photographer, George Platt Lyons, mm-hmm. and also Walker Evans. And in our McAndrew book, there are wonderful photographs by Lyons of both McAndrew and Agnes Ringe. Mm-hmm. And it's during this period, as you mentioned, that McAndrew is a regular at the Sunday evening salon Mm -hmm. of another classmate, Kirk Askew, and his wife Constance. Mm -hmm. And the actor John Houseman, his memoir, paints a wonderful picture of this avant-garde salon, which was always a sort of a cauldron for the modernists. Mm You know, the Askews would produce bootlegged homemade liquor and 
Barr would show up. He was then director, the first director of MoMA. And Chick Austin would come down from Hartford and Hitchcock and Philip Johnson and Kirstein and composers Aaron Copeland and Virgil Thompson mm-hmm. and George Platt Lines and Lee Miller, those two photographers, as well as mm-hmm. the dance choreographers, mm-hmm. Agnes DeMille and George Balanchine. So it was really quite, in effect, a salon for modernists. Mm-hmm quite wonderful thing, you know, when you read the descriptions of it, uh, and very serious also. I mean, uh, you know, it wasn't all just fun and games, was it? Uh, there was a lot of intelligent discourse that took place here that, yes. that had consequences. So. Yes. A lot of networking, but a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, sure, I'm sure. <laughs> so out of this world, how does McAndrew finally come to Vassar? I mean, this is the Depression years, I know, right? The beginning of the Depression. Yeah, anyway, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's at the SQ Salon mm-hmm. that he met and formed a friendship with Agnes Ringe, uh-huh. who was then professor at Vassar, having completed her Ph.D. at Harvard mm-hmm. in 1928. So maybe I should mention a little bit about McAndrew's personality. Sure. He was clever and mm-hmm. witty, especially with words. He spoke a lot of languages. French, Spanish, Italian, German. He had a sort of working language. So although his background, his father was an educator, his background was somewhat modest, but he had the advantages of this elite education. Uh And then by virtue of his years at Harvard and his association with Johnson, with the Levy Gallery and the Askew Salons, he'd acquired tremendous sophistication and charm and wit also and so this carries him carries with him and he had a great ambition julian levy talks about this mm-hmm. that he had an ambition to enter academia oh. but the problem was he had no credentials yeah yeah he's not trained as a teacher at all is he and he didn't get his architecture degree and he doesn't have a history of art degree for all his years That's right. Harvard's, right so he has no Ph.D., uh-huh. no M.A., yeah. no M.R., because he left architecture school yeah. without completing his thesis. Mm-hmm. But he has the support of Ringe mm-hmm. and Chick Austin and the Harvard professor, Harold Edgel, and that won him his appointment as an instructor at Vassar. The chair at the time of the art department was Tonks, yes, who was a Harvard person yes. himself. Yeah, yes, so. In fact, yeah. he writes to Chick Austin and says, please write on your best stationery, you know, to say that I was instrumental in Forbes's class because I have no experience oh. whatsoever. And, you know, you have to convince Tonks. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So he pressed his friends to come to the bat for him. Yeah. So what was the department like when he got here? Were they interested in modernism? I know there were artists like Chatterton here who was an Ashcan painter, and, yes. and Tonks was a classical yes, art, art historian. That's right. So Ringe was interested, certainly, in modernism. Vassar was a good fit for McAndrew, yeah. because Vassar played an important role in teaching modernism and in the formation of modernism in the early decades of the 20th century. Hmm. It was really among the earliest colleges to teach the history and practice of modern art. Mm -hmm. And I 
think this really begins with the Armory Show in New York, mm-hmm. because Vassar students visited it. There was a great spark of interest on campus, and it was really Oliver Tonks who established a division of modern art the previous year in 1912 mm-hmm. within the art department. But the two together create this tremendous wellspring of interest in modern art on campus, right, in mm-hmm. this pre-war 1912-13 period. And then it's in the 20s that Vassar is attracting teachers. Mm-hmm. Alfred Barr in 1923-24 comes to teach. Hitchcock in 1927-28 comes mm-hmm. to teach. And Margaret Scolari, who is teaching Italian for five years, from, I think, 25 to 30, but later becomes Barr's wife, is also involved in the arts. And mm-hmm. then, as you mentioned, Clarence Chatterton, who was essentially a painter, but yes. very interested in modernism. Mm-hmm. And then Agnes Ringe, who's a specialist in sculpture, returns from getting her Ph.D., having worked in the Sachs circle under Paul Sachs at Harvard, and part of the Harvard Modernist Circle. She returns in 1928 and then becomes what some historians have called the vibrant center and guiding force of Vassar's art department. So is MoMA an influence during this time at all? Because MoMA is just really getting off the ground about the same time. Well, I think there are two things, if I can step back just Uh for a second. I think there are two things. MoMA is very important. MoMA, of course, isn't established until 1929. And just before that, a half decade before that, the Société Anonyme, Uh which was founded by Catherine Dreyer and Man Ray and Marcel Duchamp, Mm -hmm. they bring exhibitions to Vassar as early as 1923. There are two exhibitions Mm -hmm. held at Vassar's Taylor Art Gallery. And one is a kind of group show of European-American paintings, Picasso, Brock, Mm -hmm. Maccabia for European paintings, and then artists like Marston Hartley and Joseph Stella on Mm -hmm. the American side. For example, Stella's Brooklyn Bridge was Mm -hmm. shown, and then Picabia's Universal prostitution was shown in that exhibition. So that, you know, that stirred up quite a lot of interest. And then in the same year, a Kandinsky exhibition sponsored by the Societe Anonyme. So this was really the avant garde coming mm-hmm. to Vassar. And the Vassar women were really excited about this and debating it in the college newspaper, mm-hmm. as you know, the Miscellany News. Yeah, interesting to think about. And then the MoMA, as yeah. you mentioned, yeah. has a really strong affiliation with Vassar. Mm-hmm. And there's a really kind of dynamic energy between the two yeah. because Vassar women were members of MoMA. Uh-huh. And then the MoMA exhibitions were reviewed by Vassar women in the school newspaper. Uh-huh. And then the MoMA traveling exhibitions were installed at Vassar. Yeah. There was a f- photographs of modern architecture in 1933, which was really a sort of distillation of mm-hmm. MoMA's international style show. There was a Gauguin traveling exhibition. Mm-hmm. And in 1935, 
photographs of a Le Corbusier exhibition shown at the Museum of Modern Art. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, MoMA was circulating its avant-garde films. And so not only were there the traveling exhibitions, but also MoMA curators gave lectures Mm -hmm. at Vassar. Hitchcock, Johnson, Lincoln Kirstein were all coming Mm -hmm. to Vassar. Yeah. It was exciting times. Yeah, um, one gets the feeling reading the newspaper articles that the question of modernism is really of moment on campus. I mean, it's something everybody should be concerned about, it seems. Uh, you know, it's the feeling you get from the articles that it's, it's very important writing. And these exhibits are very important to the students. So these traveling exhibitions out of moment particularly are really integrated into the curriculum in a, in yeah. a wonderful way. So, yeah. And the teachers, like McAndrew and Ringe, were encouraging that integration. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And one of the really great reporters I found was a woman called Aline Bernstein. She mm-hmm. was a student of McAndrews, and she later married Eero Saarinen. Ah, uh, yes. Because yeah. she becomes really important. Mm-hmm. So your book then takes my library, the art library, uh, as a kind of case study. This is a little later now. This is into the 30s. And modernist uh, architectural experiment in the United States. And I wonder, you know, maybe move on to the art library. Can you talk about the library and what indeed was modern or innovative about it? I know there was a need, a felt need, for the library because so many students were pouring into art history. We had so many majors that, you know, the curriculum was expanding in this area. We were hiring teachers. Well, you know, my first impression is that it's such a beautiful library and a Mm -hmm. wonderful interior in which to study in the main reading room and the adjacent study rooms. And as you know, it was designed between 1935 and 37, and then restored in 2009 by Platt, Byard, Dovell, and White. And the restoration was done so exquisitely as if the architects and the paint conservators were walking in McAndrew's steps. And then, of course, it's a very colorful interior with vivid photographs Mm -hmm. in our book. Yes, by Vassar Professor Andrew Talon. Some of them are really like abstracts, like Andre Cortez or even Charles Sheeler had done them, you know, beautiful photographs. Well, they're works of art. Yeah. They capture the color, too, which yes. is unusual here because that's part of McAndrew's contribution, isn't it? His sense of yeah. color to architecture. Well, you know, I call it the first modern art interior of an academic building mm-hmm. on an American campus. Because it's really a modern interior slipped inside a Tudor Gothic shell. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of hybrid of Bauhaus modernism. So that Bauhaus modernism we might see in its glass bricks, its use of modern and vernacular materials such as cork floors and wood and linoleum tables Mm. and functional lighting fixtures and wood chairs following Bauhaus models by Mark Stamm and others. In other words, the idea of craft applied to manufactured products. Mm -hmm. But part of the hybrid is the Bauhaus um, merged with its main feature, which is color, as Mm -hmm. you mentioned, that is partly inspired by Bauhaus attitudes, but I think... In my research, I found 
perhaps more by the theory of what was called purism, mm -hmm. which was a theory promoted by the French Swiss artist and architect Le Corbusier mm -hmm. and the artist Amade aux Enfants mm -hmm. in the 1920s. And purism meant an emphasis on a work's geometric forms, its formal structure, and what Le Corbusier called an association of purified and related architectural elements. And in effect, what Macandrew was doing was to challenge the international style uh -huh. as he had witnessed it in the MoMA show of 1932. Mm -hmm. And its curators, Hitchcock and Johnson, had called in that show, they'd called for a restraint of color, mm -hmm. favor of black, white, gray, and other neutral tonalities. Yeah. And McAndrew is reacting to this, I feel, and drawing on the color theory embodied in Le Corbusier's concept of purism. Mm -hmm. So when we look at the art library, we see these vivid colors of blue, terracotta, light yellow, pinkish orange, mm -hmm. which recall the purest colors with what was called at the time their constructive properties. So by constructive, what was meant was that a color such as pinkish orange could anchor a wall, mm -hmm. whereas blue, that color was meant to create space mm -hmm. and suggest the idea of calm. So, of course, blue would be perfect for the main reading room. Yeah. So the blue bookcases and blue columns and so forth of the Vassar Art Library reading room speak to that. So when Agnes Ringe in her article, which we reproduce in the book, mm -hmm. speaks to the library's functionalism, I think we might maybe from a historical perspective, adjust that a little and see a kind of transformation from a mere functionalism, a transformation that speaks to a transformation from mere functionalism into art. Mm -hmm. This was Le Corbusier's idea mm -hmm. of creating art from mere functionalism or mere utilitarianism, mm -hmm. which is, I think, something that the historical perspective provides for us. And you also call it, or I think McAndrew called it, a naturalization of the international style, in a sense, didn't he? Yes. It was very American, in a way, the way, you know, you would become a naturalized citizen. Or, that's uh, right. Yeah, so. That's right. So anyway, Corbusier, then, he actually visits Vassar, doesn't he, uh, at about this time, 1935, oh, yeah. I think, yes. That's right. And I don't know if McAndrew was the person who invited him. He certainly must have met him. And, well, uh, I think that McAndrew may possibly have met him mm -hmm. in France in uh, either 1932 or 1933, mm -hmm. because he goes to Europe quite frequently in these years. And, of course, Hitchcock knew and Barr knew. They all had visited Le Corbusier. So it's possible McAndrew could have gone along on one of those trips. But he certainly met Le Corbusier when he came to Vassar in 1935. Yes. And that was a lecture tour in which he visited. He gave 21 lectures mm -hmm. to 15 venues. So he went to a lot of colleges yeah. during this period. Yeah. Le Corbusier illustrated his talk by means of drawings on long scrolls. And after the lecture, as Le Corbusier recounted his, his memoir of his American tour, the Vassar women 
rushed the stage, uh-huh. tore up his drawings, <laughs> and urged Le Corbusier to sign them. Yeah. And I think it, Le Corbusier was quite taken aback, but he was <laughs> so impressed yeah. with the weight of their questions to him yeah. that he could only reply to them, oh, you know, you overwhelm me. I must be excused, he said. Yeah, he, I'm going to join the people <laughs> eating cookies. <laughs> he tried to escape to the cookie table. He was yeah. surprised also that they were all French speakers because he gave his lecture in French. Yes, so. Oh, he was yeah. so impressed with them. He was enthralled with these intelligent, athletic, he loved their bodies, mm. these French-speaking, cigarette-smoking, and really beguiling women because he thought of the Vassar woman as the new American woman. Uh, Amazons, he also called them, of course. But, he did, you know. and, you <laughs> well, know... they called themselves Amazons. Also, that's right. Yeah, they yeah. did very yeah. early on. Yeah. It's funny. Yeah, it is. Very yeah. early on. Yeah, and it's a wonderful story, anyway, so... Uh, yes. But Corbusier was one of a long list of famous artists who came to visit in these years, yes, or architects. So, yes, uh, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And then, of course, McAndrew not only designs the library, but he redesigns the art gallery in Taylor Hall, doesn't he? And it's all yes. part of a common educational program that links art to the documentary record of art, yes. Yes, the Vassar Art Gallery, which of course no longer exists, mm-hmm. was a long room with a glass ceiling to spread a kind of diffuse light onto the walls. It was a room divided to form three gallery spaces, divided by screens. And we show one photograph of the jade room with light from above Uh and then light from strip windows to create this wonderful volume of light and air, Mm -hmm. a veritable light box. It's really quite wonderful. Yeah, the thing about McAndrew is he didn't actually design much, so he doesn't get much credit for being, you know, an important architect. But what he did design was really just exquisite. So then he leaves Vassar then just after the art library is erected, and he goes on to the Museum of Modern Art. Yes, Uh, he leaves really in the summer-fall of 1937 to become curator of architecture and industrial art at Mm -hmm. the Museum of Modern Art. And Barr, Alfred Barr, had recruited him. And this occurs at the moment in which Philip Goodwin, who was a MoMA principal, mm-hmm. and Edward Durrell Stone mm-hmm. were designing the new Museum of Modern Art headquarters on 53rd Street. Mm-hmm. Barr had actually resigned from the building committee, but he wanted to keep his interests alive. And so he put McAndrew on the building committee to look out for him. And on that committee, McAndrew pursued his modernist vision through design contributions to the new museum. Mm -hmm. And I've identified five contributions, some through Margaret Barr, who's written about them. For example, the S-curve of the entrance marquee. Uh, Ah, yes. The lobby. Yeah, I remember it well, yes. The penthouse terrace, which had a cantilevered canopy with 11 perforated round skylights, Mm -hmm. what the critics later called the cheese holes, (laughs) and the library, which is very Mm. similar to the Vassar Art Library in the sense that it used corning glass blocks, metal bookcases, 
Mark Stom tubular chairs, mm-hmm. even lighting fixtures, yeah. very similar. And then probably most importantly, the sculpture garden, yes, which he yeah. designed with Barr, which was the first modern sculpture garden. And it occupied the whole rear of the building, the garden to the 54th Street side. Yeah. And you could behold that garden from deep inside the museum mm-hmm. by virtue of its plate glass windows. Mm-hmm. So it was really an open space divided by lightweight partitions, fencing both diagonal and curvilinear free-form partitions, with also shrubs and trees. Mm. And it was Barr who placed sculpture within these various partitions, similar to the way in which Mies van der Rohe might have placed sculpture. Uh-huh. But McAndrew added to this a ground plane with yellow and gray pebbles in a mosaic pattern that most likely was inspired by Mexican gardens, Mm -hmm. which he had actually first gone to Mexico in 1934, or perhaps colonial American gardens, or perhaps a hybrid of the two. Mm -hmm. And that's where we meet up with this idea of a kind of naturalized modernism Mm -hmm. or naturalization, this synthesis of European and American, or forms from the Americas, modernism. In this case, the modernism, a kind of spatial sophistication of Frank Lloyd Wright and Mies, and then vernacular or organic freeform elements and materials. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, it's been redone many times. We can't visit the That's original right. garden. Yes, yeah. That's right. We can't. So while he was at MoMA, was he influential at all as a curator of architecture? Very. Uh, yeah, very. Mm-hmm. I think he was very influential. He curated 13 exhibitions mm-hmm. and 8 circulating exhibitions. He produced a film called The Evolution of the Skyscraper. Mm-hmm. And he edited the landmark. He really put it together. The landmark Guide to Modern Architecture in the Northeast States. Uh. And my sense is that He's pursuing a series of themes in those exhibitions. He's pursuing modern and vernacular expression. He's pursuing an attempt to reconcile formalism with Lewis Mumford's sociocultural mm-hmm. uh, and regionalist convictions. Yeah, uh-huh. He's challenging this international style, neutral color palette through his idea of color theory. He's promoting naturalization as a hybrid of European and American modernism. And he's also putting on a show devoted to public housing. And he's introducing the American public to a panorama of Latin American art. So he has a lot of important exhibitions, probably the most important of which are his two Frank Lloyd Wright exhibitions. Uh, Yes, he had an exhibition on falling water and a book, yes. Well, he had an exhibition Mm -hmm. in 1938. In fact, it was his idea to do this exhibition, Mm -hmm. and it was very influential, exhibition of 1938, very influential in reviving Wright's career. That's what I thought, yes, yes. And with the exhibition, which was largely a brochure, actually, Mm -hmm. in which material was taken from, they were quotes, really, 
provided by Wright. Wright mm-hmm. liked to control his own oh, publicity. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and it very much popularized his work. And it introduced the American public to the idea of an organic architecture, a site-specific house anchored yes, yeah. to a bedrock. Mm-hmm. That was something new, a, a cantilevered concrete terrace a dramatic waterfall. So it made it really the most famous American house, and it led to commissions. Tied it all to, in a sense, American mythology, which is rooted to the landscape, and uh, that whole tradition of, you know, Hudson River School Art and uh, landscape painting and also allegory. That's right. That's right. And it also later led to a huge right retrospective in 1941 Uh, for McAndrew. Other exhibitions at MoMA? I think the other one that's really important is an exhibition called Three Centuries of Art in the United States, mm-hmm. which started out as an exhibition at the Jeux de Pomme in Paris in 1938. And then there was an American version, really directly afterwards in the U.S. And here he promotes the idea that the vernacular, or vernacular expression, suffuses the long history of American building. And it exists in America long before the arrival of European modernism as an acculturation, a synthesis of forms from Europe and those native to the U.S. Mm -hmm. For example, naturalism for him means something like a veranda, for example, which he sees as an American form, added to an 18th century Virginia planter's house, which might be derived from a British builder's manual. In other words, the addition of a veranda would be a response to location, mm-hmm. a regional response yes, to yeah. a warm climate, mm-hmm. a southern response to the climate of the south, for example, or a social condition, a neoclassical temple front, for example, to symbolize American democracy mm-hmm. in a William Strickland Bank, the second bank of the United States in mm-hmm. Philadelphia, for example. So he likes this idea of the hybrid to create a synthesis in what is American modernism. Yeah, interesting. Seems to come out of his teaching in a way, too, because it's very educationally based. It's accessible to grasp for a student. I think so, yes. And then there were other wonderful exhibitions. He had a hand in the Bauhaus exhibition, Mm -hmm. although that was really a Gropius and Herbert Beyer exhibition. The exhibition that he promoted and the architect that he discovered was Alvar Aalto. Uh, great architect. And, yes, and he promoted Aalto mm-hmm. in an exhibition of 1938 called Alvar Aalto Architecture and Furniture. Mm-hmm. And he was virtually unknown in America before that exhibition. That's hard to believe. And, yeah, it <laughs> is. And of course the furniture was very much marketed mm-hmm. in the U.S. after that exhibition through Artec, the mm-hmm. firm that yeah. Alto founded. And then also a wonderful series of exhibitions based on the idea of useful household objects under $5 or under mm-hmm. $10, which launched the Museum of Modern Art's product development for mass consumption. Mm-hmm. An interesting idea. Yeah, it is, yeah. So then he goes to Mexico during the war after he leaves MoMA, yes? He does. He leaves MoMA in June of 1941, and in effect, he was fired. MoMA principals, such as Stephen Clark and A.C. Goodyear 
and Nelson Rockefeller, who was mm. the president of MoMA, resented his contributions to the design of the MoMA building. Mm. They blamed him for not managing his time and the budget. <laughs> they faulted him for what Barr called too much intellectual confidence. <laughs> Yeah, it sounds like the fate of many an academic I've known. Yes. You know, so. And the trustees weren't pleased with him. Mm-hmm. And McAndrew was not overly impressed by the trustees. No, yeah, yeah. Barr, though, supported McAndrew. And he wrote to Paul Sachs saying he was a person of courage and integrity and the most brilliant person on our staff. Mm. So you can see that Barr, who was the yeah. intellectual leader yes. at MoMA, yes. had great respect him, yeah. for McAndrew. Yeah. He received, quite ironically, a grant in 1941, the moment he's leaving, from the office of the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs, which was led by Nelson Rockefeller, who, by August of 1941, has left the Museum of Modern Art. Mm -hmm. He stepped down as president to lead this office, and of course, that was very much in conjunction with the interests of his family, that Mm -hmm. is, the oil interests of his family, because this was an organization formed by the U.S. government, headed by Rockefeller, to counter Axis sway mm-hmm. or Axis influence in Latin America and to strengthen the economic interests of the United States mm-hmm. there. And many historians have said that it was a forerunner, the so-called OCIAA mm-hmm. was a forerunner of the OSS, OSS the yeah. Office of Strategic Services, yeah. and even the CIA. Betty McAndrew, that is McAndrew's wife, whom he married in 1953, later said that her husband worked for the CIA. Uh. And that puzzled me for a very long time. I read all the letters I could find. I worked on a kind of day-by-day, week-by-week, month-by-month. I could not find any proof of this. Mm -hmm. By the spring of 1942, this is less than a year, when he's in Mexico. He's run completely out of OCIA funds. He's unremittingly pressed for money. Mm-hmm. He gets money from Edgar Kaufman Jr., that is the son of the client of Falling Water, yes, uh-huh. who is a MoMA affiliate who gives him money. And my sense is that he may have gone to parties and tried to get some information and passed it along. Mm-hmm. But I don't think he was a strategic player. No, an agent. But you can imagine him wanting to do his bit during the war and this being a way that he could sort of do that. So eventually then he ends up at Wellesley up in your neck of the woods. He returns from the war in 1946. He receives an appointment in 1946 at Wellesley as a lecturer. Of course, Barr gets it for him. He Mm -hmm. watches that for him. Barr, who had taught at Wellesley... 1926 to 1929. Well, when he's at Wellesley, he was teaching a wide range of courses. It's absolutely astounding. He was teaching modern art and architecture, Spanish art, Hmm. northern European painting, medieval architecture, Renaissance and Baroque architecture. Hmm. So he was very much able to teach, as almost no one does today, this 
extraordinary range of courses. And at the same time, he was director of the Wellesley College Museum. This is the Farnsworth Museum at yes. this point, yeah. uh-huh. from 1948 to 58. Uh-huh. And when he is director, he represents the college as the client for its new art museum, which is the Jewett Arts Center. So who was the architect mm, of the Jewett? The choice Mm -hmm. was Paul Rudolph, designed between 1955 and 58. And McAndrew knew Rudolph's early houses in Sarasota, Florida, because he had given a lecture at Chick Austin's museum in Sarasota, the Ringling Museum. Mm -hmm. Austin was then director of the Ringling Museum because he and Agnes Rinch had gone down to give lectures there. So that had given him the sense that Rudolph was quite a brilliant designer. Mm. He's published all kinds of art historical articles and books while he's at Wellesley and had quite a reputation there as an art historian, doesn't he, mean apart from his teaching? Yes, that's true. He published a number of articles and articles on art as well as architecture, a wonderful one on Sullivan, a wonderful one on Saarinen's work on the GM building that Aline Saarinen urges him to write. Mm. It's a wonderful article. And then he devotes quite a lot of his uh, research time to a book that receives the Hitchcock Prize Mm. from the Society of Architectural Historians Mm -hmm. called The Open Air Churches, of the 16th century in Mexico, Mm. which is published in 1965. And it is again about this naturalism, this acculturation between received tradition Mm. from colonialism Mm -hmm. and the adaption to climate and native practices in Mexico. There's his work on the Save Venice Society. I wonder if you could talk about that a bit. Since, at least as of last week, Venice is completely underwater again, it seems to be, unfortunately, doesn't it? It's such a tragedy. Yeah, it is. And such a challenge. Well, as you know, there were floods in Venice and Florence and other cities Mm -hmm. in the fall of 1966. McAndrew had already retired from Wellesley in 1968. Mm -hmm. And several years later, in 1971, he... His wife, Betty McAndrew, and his colleague, who had formerly been at Wellesley and who had then moved to Harvard, Sidney J. Friedberg, Mm -hmm. together, the three of them founded Save Venice, Inc. And their mission was to raise money to help restore the buildings and the frescoes that had been damaged by the floods. And they were very successful in restoring the facades of the Cadoro mm-hmm. and the Doge Palace in Venice, the cathedrals of Murano and Torcello, and many other buildings, mm-hmm. and they are still doing so today. Well, society's still going, isn't it? Very active. There, yes. yeah. And then, did he have a villa there himself in his retirement? He lived there, and yeah, he yeah. is buried there. Oh, he, he is? He and his wife oh. are buried oh. there, yes, in the cemetery there. Oh. And in fact, he received a number of awards He was a recipient of the Order of Merit of the Republic of Italy, the Torta Prize. He was an honorary fellow of the Venetian Institute of Sciences, Arts, and Letters. Well, one last question. What are you working on for the future now that this book is behind you? Well, you know, 
what I learned from this project, if I can speak a second about what I think is McAndrew's significance, okay. which helped yeah. me to think about the future, mm-hmm. was if we think of modern art and architecture as a reflection of the present, meaning the culture and spirit of the present, we recognize, as McAndrew did, that the present of the 1930s was different than the present of the heroic decade of the 1920s. And McAndrew wanted to keep pace with that. And so McAndrew's vision was really twofold. It was a view of functionalism as a kind of hybrid of Bauhaus thinking Mm -hmm. and of Le Corbusier's ideals to transform the utilitarian into art. Mm -hmm. And so what McAndrew is doing is reframing the international style as a synthesis of modern and the vernacular that reflected the culture of the 1930s. So through his concept of naturalization, he's forging a synthesis of the many streams of modernism Mm -hmm. on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh So the organic tradition of right Mm -hmm. meets the Mm -hmm. Corbusian purism at the moment that Corbusier and Breuer are incorporating organic Mm -hmm. forms. So that the Vassar Art Library reflects the color palette Mm -hmm. and the constructive use of colors as well as the vernacular thinking of McAndrew's time. What I'm working on now is a sort of bigger picture of modernism and the vernacular Mm -hmm. as a transatlantic project. Uh I'm looking at the native stream of modernism, the organic tradition, and then I'm also looking at the received tradition from Europe Mm -hmm. and their synthesis in the 1930s. Is Mumford part of this? Because, you know, there's a notion there that the precursors here are British, of course, with Mumford, not German. So there's a little division within the European camp. Yes, am I right about that? Absolutely. For the organic tradition, Uh you see a very strong tradition from Ruskin mm-hmm. uh-huh. to Richardson, uh-huh. Sullivan, Wright. Yes, yeah. Uh-huh. Absolutely. They yeah. all read Ruskin. Yeah. But I also look to Viollet Le Duc and to Semper, uh-huh. too. Yeah. I think Semper is very important. Viollet mm-hmm. Le Duc is important. So I look at vernacular in that uh-huh. sense. So do you have any library visits planned? Oh, research yes, visits? Yeah. absolutely. <laughs> yeah, well, I very much enjoy going to the Museum of Modern Art Uh, always. mm -hmm. I use very much the Loeb Library at Harvard University. Of course, Avery Library and the Getty Mm -hmm. when I can. The Smithsonian Institution Mm -hmm. when I can. The Archives of American Art. The Hitchcock Papers are there. I've read hundreds of letters Mm -hmm. that Hitchcock wrote Mm -hmm. and received. So the material is there and it's the rich resource for scholars. Yeah. Sounds like a wonderful project. And it's the project. fun part. Well, yes, of course, yeah. It's so, the thrill of the chase. Yeah. So anyway, j- just to say again, this is just a beautifully designed book. Adam Michaels at Inventory Press did a nice job on it, I think. And, and it's loaded with wonderful images, both by Andrew Tallent and others also. And wonderful appended matter, including uh, the exhibition list of all the exhibitions that we've had in the uh, Vassar College Art Gallery and then the Loeb Center. And then, of course, Agnes Claflin 
Collins article uh, s- summing the, like the art library up, you know, after the project was done. So, so anyway, uh, it, Jack, it's a great collaboration. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Molly Nesbitt found some wonderful archival photographs. The librarians at Vassar were terrific. Mm-hmm. Andrew Talon's photographs were great. We had a student, Antoine Robinson. Yes, yeah. Did a wonderful plan for us yes. based on a blueprint. Yeah, they look wonderful because I remember getting these blueprints out of facilities, and they they, they look pretty horrible. So Antoine has made them into something quite legible and beautiful, actually. So yeah. Yeah, it was a great collaboration, yeah. and of course we had wonderful editor. Nina Pick, uh-huh. and Princeton Architectural Press dedicated all the principals there, dedicated themselves to producing a beautiful book. Yeah, it is beautiful, both in the jacket and outside of the jacket. I love the blue of the cover, so which is very Corbusian. Um, seems <laughs> to me, <so>. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is, okay, yeah. The cover of the McAndrew book shows McAndrew in front of Le Corbusier's painting, mm-hmm. Still life with a stack of plates. Uh-huh. In the fall of 1937, McAndrew becomes curator of architecture and industrial art at the Museum of Modern Art. And at this time, Barr has been negotiating with Le Corbusier for the purchase of a painting by Le Corbusier called Still Life with a Stack of Plates mm-hmm. of 1920. Yeah. So McAndrew had a special affinity for this painting. Uh And in fact, he posed for two photographs in front of Still Life. So our cover shows McAndrew in front of Still Life holding a copy of a book by Siegfried Gideon Mm -hmm. called Space, Time, and Architecture. And in fact, it was the dust jacket Mm -hmm. designed by Herbert Beyer. And so I had to puzzle with the meaning of that. And in Gideon's book, he describes Le Corbusier's purest paintings that were suffused with what he called a floating transparency Mm. of volumes and profiles to produce what he called a marriage of contours. Mm. So anyone who paints in volumes, he thought, should use these colors. So my sense is that this idea informed the Vassar Art Library. Had it been exhibited here? The painting was exhibited. At Vassar, it was yes, exhibited yeah, yeah, that's at what I thought. Yes, Absolutely. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, wonderful. And he has a kind of impish smile. You can see, even though the book that's is right. covering his mouth, you can see in his eyes that he's having a good time. Well, here, so. <laughs> that is an interesting yeah. point, because Gideon's book wasn't published until 1941, so Uh we know the date Uh of the two photographs, and it occurs at the moment at which he's been fired. Oh. So my sense is that it is a kind of puckish, impish Mm -hmm. view, that he's playing with the camera and that he's making a statement. Uh-huh. So I want to thank you, Margis, for visiting with us on the Library Cafe today to talk about your book, John McAndrew's Modernist Vision from the Vassar College Art Library to the Museum of Modern Art in New York. A great pleasure, Tom. Thank you. Thank you, too.